Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. guys no uh no a clever opening question except for to ask how you're doing how's it going like what's what's new in the in the condon house in the Heyman home what do you have to say for yourselves i mean i i will say uh it's one thing that i have noticed about the podcast that is a little strange is i record it and then like major catastrophe can happen in my life and I was deeply aware uh, that we were recording today because the news is telling us that within the next 10 days, there's supposed to be this crazy, crazy hurricane. Oh, yeah. And we don't know if it's going to... Hit I Florida or Texas. It'll be Florida or Texas. Well, you know? or, or New Orleans. So I got, oh, you know, Orleans, my, yeah, my, yeah. my little brother immediately Ugh. sent me a message this morning and was like, have you watched the news? You know, so anyway, it's a weird thing because I was preparing for this i was like i wonder what it will be like 10 days from now so uh, yeah well we had but, that we had that news flash in the in the middle of the last episode about the queen that was uh, yeah i've heard a lot from people being like yeah you guys heard that was that was an, a real-time reaction I it think. was a real-time reaction Very yes much. it was and my so, favorite queen meme just to have to say it is the one where all the guard people are carrying her corgis and it says the queen's corgis offer their execution it just makes me laugh so much. <laughs> I'm just getting that all of a sudden. I mean, I oh. own a corgi, so calm down. But um, I just thought it was funny. Okay, RJ, how are you? How's Florida? It's okay. I, I, I hate to say this. I know two weeks ago I was kind of tired, and I'm, I'm, I've not had a break really since then. You know, we had, I had two funerals a Saturday right after that. And then um, the whole family flew to California for my wife's grandmother's funeral, which we really needed to be at. She was kind of the matriarch of the family, and Jamie's family has been up there for over 100 years. And so all the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and everybody was there. But it was a long way away, you know, Mm -hmm. about as far away as I could get in the continental United States. And it was a quick trip, and it was, um, and I'm just, uh, I'm tired. I'm like, why am I tired? Oh, yeah, I haven't really had, uh, I've done three funerals, traveled thousands of miles, and Mm -hmm. haven't had a break in two weeks. And as with a lot of clergy, I think you come into the fall, you know, and you have all these, like, hopes and expectations, and then you're also like, how's this going to go? I don't well, have, you know, I have yeah. anxiety to go with the, uh, yeah. with the, with the hopes. So that's I mean, where I, I think am, you honestly. have all your hopes and expectations and that's so good. And then somebody hands you a book bag full of a hundred pounds worth of rocks. And they're like, you can do all that stuff, but you're going to need to carry these rocks. Too. Exactly. And that's exactly. what the fall feels like. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you don't get any sleep either. No sleep. No carry sleep. The rocks Cause and, you're, you're yeah. still wearing the book bag at night. Okay. Just to be clear, like you don't get yes. to take it off cause you're in no, bed. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. Never. Ever well, I, I mean, I, I the travel. Dave, are you me, doing anything these days? Yeah, I think what are you your schedule just opened up. Dave's it, Dave? basically Mariah Carey like, right now. It's <laughs> on tour, nineteen ninety seven. Butterfly. I'm on the, the Mockingcast Goodwill Tour, two thousand two thousand twenty two. It was. Um, it's been a real. Um, 
you know, head spinning experience since the book came out uh, about a week, little over a week ago. It's been really, really fun to, to I mean, I sort of started traveling and today I'm recording some in Birmingham, Alabama and I was in Memphis yesterday and I was in Nashville the day before that and it's so, um, I love traveling, you know, it's when you're thinking about how it's going at home and you're getting, you're getting, yeah. you know, messages from, you know, yes. <laughs> I had one of my sons email me, he's like, Kate. dad, can you send me four packs of big league chew? It's not for me. And like, you think like that's, that's what I was like, wait, what's, what on earth is that about? But it's yeah. also like the best text message I've ever received. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been super fun. You know, I'm, I'm so proud of this book and it's, it, I'm watching people connect with it and not just the normal folks, not just the sort of mockingbird fans, but to see it, um, I keep inscribing these books and my, my hope is that it lightens the load, you know, that all mm. of these rocks we're carrying. And I really think it, it has that potential and it's doing that in some small ways already. And, um, and it's also really fun. I'll say this as while we're on the air, it's really fun to meet people who love this podcast and Mm. for whom it has been helpful and transformative. I talked to someone who had really dealt with a serious tragedy this fall and was talking about how Sarah talking about her parents had been really helpful. And then yesterday I talked to a young woman who's in ministry and claims that, you know, that, that, uh, that Sarah, frankly, that you are witness to her had been like really, really important. And then I talked to an older lady who's like, I listened to this in the master bath. You know, <laughs> she's like that RJ's voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then, yeah. And then other people too. They TMI. They, <laughs> the, the, the rector of this church in Memphis was saying that like it, you know, he, he spent the, the lockdown calling people to make sure they're okay, telling his kids not to play in the street and listening to the mocking cast. And I thought, Aww. well, that's, if we could fill that that's role, really then dear. I'd be happy, that, that's happy about good. that, you know? Yeah. So that's cool. Um, let I'm me... really excited for the Weird Al biopic, I have to see. My oh, son showed same. me the, uh, the preview, and it's like, you know, it's, of course, a parody of a biopic, which yeah. is hilarious, and which yeah. apparently, like, has an affair with Madonna, and, like, does all... So, anyway, which I don't think... I'd... Dave, that did not actually happen. No, right? there's no, no way that No, of course happened. not. Exactly. No, 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 there's so no it looks, way that uh, happened. With uh, Daniel Rad- Radcliffe, it looks really funny, so looking forward to that. That's He's kind really... of a, a Mockingbird patron saint, I feel like. What, who's the Trinity? It's him. Dolly Parton and I feel like there wasn't there uh, one Mr. more Rogers. Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers we're talking about we're not talking about Daniel Radcliffe we're not talking about Daniel Radcliffe we're, we're talking no, about no, no, no. Weird Al we, we are just not Harry clear. Potter fans at Mockingbird okay <laughs> um, keep that we just lost away like, we just lost like 15 speak listeners speak for yourself uh, <laughs> the um, do you guys have good handwriting yes I won the handwriting award in third grade thank you so much for asking uh, you did yes I didn't like you penmanship Yes. What about you, RJ? Do you have good handwriting? No. No? No. No. And I I, I hate handwriting because I never do it. My hand gets so tired so fast. I Aww. hate it. Really? I know. It's, why, it's my excuse for not writing thank you notes. It's <laughs> 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 terrible. I'm like, I hate this. Yeah. Well, anyway. But Sarah, like, you, you've got, you're like proud of your penmanship? Uh, Yeah. You like For really sure. won a prize. I mean, I wasn't really an, an excellent student at anything else. Like that was the only award I won. So yeah. like, yeah, I mean, I go girl. Yeah. Thanks. That's so funny that that's Thanks. the award. Yeah. Um, well, the first article we're talking about today is about penmanship. I think you know, I get. By the way, I've got terrible handwriting, and in fact, that is true. W- when we send out our uh, semi-annual like mockingbird appeal letters, and we we handwrite all the addresses because I just think people actually open handwritten address things. Yeah. Uh, I've almost been forbidden from doing the addressing because like so many get sent back 
because uh, the <laughs> post office funny. can't read. And um, you should take that opportunity. You should be like, yes, you're right. I should no longer do this. I have the spiritual gift of delegation. Delegation, yes. (laughs) Not doing this. Um, Thank you, Deanna Roche, if you're listening. We love you. We do. Uh, This first uh, thing is from Drew Drew Gilpin Faust in The Atlantic. Gen Z never learned to read cursive. Oh, yeah. And this is uh, someone who was teaching a class at Harvard and a history class and realized that uh, someone was talking about it, um, trying to read a book about the Civil War, and there were all these like handwritten letters, and they just had to confess they couldn't read any of them because they can't read cursive. Because <laughs> this is what this is what the, the article says: In 2010, cursive was omitted from the new National Common Core standards for K through 12 education. Um, and so the students in my class and their peers were somewhere in elementary school when this happened. Now in college, they represent the vanguard of a cursive-less world. The decline in cursive looking back seems inevitable. Writing is, after all, a technology, and most technologies are sooner or later surpassed and replaced. As Tamara Plackens Thornton demonstrates in her book, Handwriting in America, it has always been... seller. It has always been... I uh, do own it. Affected. (laughs) It was your gift in third grade. (laughs) Uh, Handwriting has always been affected by changing social and cultural forces. In 18th century America, writing was the domain of the privileged... Uh, at that point, men and women even learned different scripts. By 1860, though, more than 90% of the white population in America could both read and write. Penmanship came to be seen as a marker of expression and of the self, of gender and class to be sure, but also of deeper elements of character and soul. The notion of a signature as a unique representation of a particular individual gradually came to be enshrined in the law and accepted as legitimate legal evidence. Now, this is sort of where it gets slightly philosophical. There's a great deal of the past we are better off without. But there are dangers in cursive's loss. Students will miss the excitement and inspiration that I have seen them experience as they interact with the physical embodiment of thoughts and ideas voiced by a person long since silenced by death. Mm. Handwriting can make the past seem almost alive in the present. All of us, not just students and scholars, will be affected by this loss. The inability to read handwriting deprives society of direct access to its own past. We will become reliant on a small group of trained translators and experts to report what history was about. I mean, okay, that seems a little extreme. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is all pretty It's still extreme. in English. Okay, <laughs> keep going. Grandiose. The spread of literacy in the early modern West was driven by people's desire to read God's word for themselves, to be empowered by an experience of unmediated connection. The abandonment of cursive represents a curious reverse parallel. We are losing a connection and thereby disempowering ourselves. You're right. A little, yes, a, a, over overstretching. Uh, uh, a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little He's like, bit. we're losing a language. I mean, mm. um, so I do think here about uh, my brother who worked for a very elderly lawyer in New Orleans that was like, just whatever just popped in your brain is a hundred percent accurate. And he used to, um, (laughs) to give, he would give my brother his notes, like, like handwritten on legal yellow legal pads. And my brother would have to take pictures of them and send them to my mom and get on the phone with my mom. And she would have to tell him what they said. And you know, if you round up, my brother's 10 years younger than I am. And so, you know, I mean, this is, 
this is actually a problem. Uh, <laughs> even in the workforce wow. today, when people really young are interfacing with people who are more elderly. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I because I have inherited so much writing, mm-hmm. boxes and boxes, and and it is in cursive. And it's not only is it just in cursive, but it's in like impoverished public school Louisiana cursive, which is its own thing. Wow. Um, you know, trying to interpret that has been uh, a really beautiful challenge. But all I can think of, honestly, is that my parents, and this is like so them, because they were both like aspiring young earnest journalists, like post-civil rights movement, when they would write each other love letters, it was like the highest thing to write them on a typewriter. So I actually have no handwritten love notes between the two of them. They're all these like typed, you know, that was such a big deal to be able to type your letter. So it just makes me think about like how... Yes, this way of communicating is probably falling by the wayside in, in a lot of circles. I will say my kids are still learning cursive, which is great. But they are. But yeah, but I mean, um, I, I I feel like it's falling by the wayside. But I mean, things fall by the wayside, and and there will be people that can. Maybe I'll be a cursive interpreter in my next. <laughs> this is, in other words, this is not the end of the world. No. In, oh my gosh. By no. any stretch. But it is I, I'm now thinking like how many obnoxious older people go up to my college students now and be like, "Did you learn cursive?" Like I'm like, "Oh, this is like the new question to ask young people. How fun." Right. But he asks, he's like, well, how do you understand what your professors write in the the margins of, because professors aren't necessarily aware of this. How do you understand what they write in the margins of like your exams or your papers? And they say, uh, we don't. We and, just don't write them. We well, and they them. give you those like those like has been Xerox copied a million times of like an article, and they have yeah. like all their like notes in the yeah. I mean that that's pretty wild. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, and we take it for granted. RJ, what what do you think about this? I had a few thoughts. Were, did we look at that article about also Gen Zers who like don't organize things on their computer, like they don't put files into folders? Apparently, no. had you heard of this? Mm-hmm. There was some other professor, I think it was a computer science professor, who was like, who was directing his class, like, go find this file in this folder on your computer, and all the kids were like, what are you talking? Like, what's a folder? Because apparently, since the since the um, advent of like the little search function on your Mac with a little magnifying mm-hmm. glass where you can just mm-hmm. type it in and find it, no one puts things in file folders anymore. They just huh. put them in w- one big pile and trust that they can find it if they just search by a word. Do you guys put I, stuff in in folders? I am apparently a Gen Z and my computer functioning. I have uh, right now. I'm up to ninety seven untitled things I've written in pages. And yeah, but nothing is in any folders. I don't do that at all. That See, like... what, yeah, whereas I have like my sermons organized by like year and I date every sermon and Girl, my no. vestry stuff. And wow. I totally do. I totally organize. I mean, I guess what? you're a really good preacher. I get it. No, but, like, no, no. No, I, I just, but, I don't know why I do Sarah. that. That's just the way I, that was just a generational thing. So I think it's always interesting. It's like, um, when my kids saw a film camera, my little kids, we took a picture with a film camera. They're like, show me the back. I want to see the picture. You're like, uh, it doesn't work that way. You know, you actually have to take it somewhere and wait for like, you know, a few days to get it back. And that was just unfathomable. So yeah. I find that interesting. Um, I did find it poignant, the author talking about sort of the mark of the pen on the paper. It, it reminds me, like when I go to museums and I see famous works of art, the thing that's always affecting to me is getting up close and seeing like the brush strokes. Mm-hmm. Like this is where Van Gogh or Monet or whatever actually put their brush 
150 years ago. That always trips me out and feels very immediate and, mm -hmm. and sort of physical and wonderful. So I think there is something lost uh, from everything being, being typed and not being handwritten. And then the other thing I thought was, uh, I think also honestly, one, and I do write thank you notes, not well or as often as I should, but one of the reasons I don't is because I fear people's judgment on my handwriting. You know, like Dave, when you were talking about how handwriting was a was a marker of like education and social status and class and like whatever, um, I I do I fear judgment on my handwriting, and I think also my perfectionism lends itself towards texts or emails or whatever. Where I can read it ten times, I can edit it, I can make it sound perfect. Whereas when you're writing something. You either have to erase it, which doesn't work very well, or you have to cross it out and put something else in, or, or God forbid you misspell something, you know, then you're, you're, it's over, you're doomed. So they're just, it, it feels, um, I don't know, yeah, my perfectionistic streak, my need to do everything right is uh, more comfortable with typing than it is with uh, doing things uh, by hand. So that, That's interesting. I, I think immediately of... My grandmother's handwriting. I had one. My my father's mother had very very distinctive, and cool handwriting. There's no way to, else to say it. It's, it's like, it's such an extension of her personality. It's hard to, for me to, because um, occasionally I'll I'll see something she, like a, a letter or something she wrote me, and it's definitely in in some kind of weird cursive that she almost made up herself. Um, and it's not like cursive is that difficult to read. I, I mean, if no. you if you like, these, well. these are still, or maybe maybe it is. Maybe I'm making that up. But I just think of that distinctiveness. There's something that if I didn't have that as part of my memory of her, I would feel like a loss. Mm. Um, and same same applies to my other grandmother. For some reason, my grandmothers uh, that, that that I think of because they would write me like notes when I was at summer camp or sure. something like that. And yet. That level of flattening all the, the individual distinctiveness that comes out in a handwriting almost like by mistake, uh, it does make for sort of easier communication between people. So maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, but I, I do mourn the loss. I've always I always think it's interesting when like you watch some you know law or legal show and they're like they bring in a handwriting expert you know to, to compare the two scripts or like there was like a books for a while it's like people would take your handwriting and they would analyze it and they tell you stuff about your personality based on the, the handwriting and um it, it is it is I, I i guess i i feel both ways in the sense of like i don't think there's any major stake here but i also don't like the love the idea that my kids would need wouldn't be able to read my own handwriting you know um in or my grandchildren wouldn't be able to that wouldn't be legible to them uh you remember, so that, movie, I, remember that movie I, her when uh, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix works for that company called uh, BeautifulHandwrittenLetters.com, and he, he, he writes them for people to send to other people. I think that, anyway, that came to mind. It's kind of that funny. That was such a good movie. I it was a very that good is, movie. That's a, a brilliant movie. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of genius, yeah. I, I mean, I do. I think I do have to say, and I feel like I've hinted around at this a little bit, um, but as the, um, the regional southerner in the conversation, you know, I do have documents from my great-grandparents where there's just an X, so, because they couldn't, they couldn't write. write. Yeah. And so, wow. you know, not all of them, but some of them. And so, I feel so much like, I feel like my mom when I say this, but like, I'm all for the, the, the way that like people can communicate now and it levels the playing field. And so nice. I do, as you know, I love the history. I love 
of course, RJ, I know totally what you mean when you stand in front of a painting and you see, you said Monet, that was all I could think of. Like, I know what Monet's signature looks like because, you know, it's imprinted. But there's also something about, like, what it means in people's actual lives that, you know, is important to, so. the uh, they, uh, He asks, like, how do you have a signature then? Because, you know, right now it says printed name and then signature. Yeah. And all these uh, the students say that they sort of jumble something together. Like, they, I mean, in, in that sense, if it becomes like a little piece of individualized art, I think that's pretty cool. That's I mean, cool. I'm, I'm all in favor of Prince when They're he like became. They're like a draw a moon. Yeah. When <laughs> Prince became that symbol thing, I thought yeah. that was a, we're still talking. I'm still thinking about that years later. I mean, it's it's hard to refer to him in uh, the love symbol or whatever it was. Right. But um, whatever Elon Musk uh, named named his child. Yeah. Anyway, like an equation or something. I forget yeah, what he named it. Something like that. Well, let's move on to actually parenting. This is um, from Jessica mm. Winter. Someone Speaking of Elon this. Musk, let's talk about parenting. <laughs> uh, this is from Jessica Winter uh, in the New Yorker. And it was a profile of the harsh realm of gentle parenting. This came out this summer, but it's been sort of reflagged for our attention. Um, it's formally a review of a book um, uh, called Brain Body Parenting by Mona Delahook. But it also references Janet Lansbury's Unruffled podcast, which is a very well-known podcast among young parents. And Destiny Bennett's TikToks and the enormously popular Instagram tutorials of uh, Dr. Becky. I don't know, Dr. Becky. Oh, be I do, honey. You do? All right. Yeah. Well, Sarah, this is, uh, this is what Jessica Winter has to say. Gentle parenting is a catch-all for variations that include respectful parenting, mindful parenting, and intentional parenting. In its broadest outlines, gentle parenting centers on acknowledging a child's feelings and the motivations behind challenging behavior, as opposed to correcting the behavior itself. The gentle parent holds firm boundaries, gives a child choices instead of orders, and eschews rewards, punishments, and threats. No sticker charts, no timeouts, no, I will turn this car around right now. <laughs> gentle parenting represents Don't a turn... Don't make me come back there. <laughs> it represents a turn away from a still-dominant progressive approach known as authoritative parenting, which likewise privileges emotional attunement but allows for positive and negative reinforcement. Authoritative parents may use timeouts and groundings, for example, which are discouraged by their gentle counterparts. And yet, a fatigue is setting in about the deference to a child's every mood, the strict maintenance of, of emotional affect, the notion that trying to keep to a schedule could be, quote, authoritarian. Sometimes the people are saying, you just need to put your freaking shoes on. One of the major themes in brain-body parenting and in gentle parenting discourse more generally is that children don't defy for the sake of defiance, but that their challenging behavior is a physiological response to stress and should be seen as essentially adaptive. The assumption unto itself is questionable. If little Timmy is on the front lawn tossing gardening implements at traffic, his motivations are probably obscurer than stress. This is one of the most confounding dilemmas of parenting, especially as kids exit the toddler stage, that sometimes a child tests or destroys boundaries for the thrill of it. Under the gentle parenting schema, a child's every act must be seen through a lens of anxiety and threat detection, which heightens the parent's dual role of child psychologist and emotional security guard. Okay, this is a hard read on gentle parenting. I just, okay. I mean, I, I don't know. First Are you of all, a gentle I, parent? Are you a gentle parent? I follow a lot of this stuff and I find it to be incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. Um... Also, I think RJ and Jamie, like, invented this. I mean, yeah, I just... Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you guys are so... 
Like, I mean, I literally quoted her the other night to my son because she basically was just like, I'm not going to get in your business about homework until I have to. So don't make me have to like do your homework, you know? And like, that is true. Yeah. And you know, I mean, there's just, I don't know that maybe gentle parenting is the best way to describe what you modeled for me when we worked together. But I, I do think about this, like, I would say for me, the best part of gentle parenting is as someone who grew up in a really reactive household, and I tend to be very reactive, that it has taught me to respond and not react. Mm. And it's it's made me a lot better at saying, like, well, what's making you feel this way? And let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I I actually think I wish I'd I wish I'd known more of this stuff when my kids are really little, but it's kind of amazing when you have a middle schooler and they're having a lot, you know, just to say like, Hey, what, you know, what's going on? Because they have the developmental awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, I can see what the writer's saying though. If I'm dealing with like an untethered three or four year old and it's just like, get your shoes on, we got to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't I, I but I've seen people have these really big reactions against it. And I I think anything that makes us question uh, barking orders at our kids yeah. and um, and frankly, like damaging our bond is I mean, I think that's, that's definitely worth looking at. Like, what about it works for you? Yes. I mean, God puts up with our nonsense. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> God is. Archie, what were you about to say? I think, well, Sarah's right. We're definitely gentle parents in theory. And um, yeah, we have told our kids, look, like we have no need to be in your business unless you give us a reason to be in your business. And we don't need to tell you, we trust you. Basically, we, we, we trust you. And within bounds, you know, and we don't want to set, we don't give them so much rope to hang themselves with, you know, but like as long as they're good kids, we're going to try to assume the best of them. And um but there's all there's such stages to life, and I, I think yeah. it also need, just needs to be said. Kids are different. Kids are different. Mm-hmm. Like some kids are better behaved, and other kids are not. And some kids are arganists going to destroy things for the thrill of it, and some kids are not. And sometimes I do wonder when people start to write um, parenting advice, how much of that has to do with their own kids, you know? And it's very easy to feel like a very good parent if you happen to have a very well-mannered child, but not every child is well-mannered. And that doesn't mean that you need to um, be authoritarian, you know, or mean or anything. I think you still try to figure out what is actually going on here. You always give the kid the benefit of the doubt. You know, we only have boys. I only have brothers. Jamie only has brothers, and we only have boys. That's crazy. Right? So it's crazy. But in our experience, if they're acting out, usually we say boys are like dogs. You got to sleep them, run them, and feed them. Yeah. And so the first question you ask is, are they tired? Are they hungry? Or do they need exercise? And that will knock out probably like 80% of the stuff. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes it doesn't. And you try to talk to them and they're still reactive and they're just in a bad mood. And every so often your kid's world just needs to end and they need to go to bed at five o'clock without dinner, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like where the wild things are, you know, totally. sometimes you get to send to bed without your supper. And then by the grace of God, you hope that the next day they're a little bit more, um, circumspect, mm-hmm. you know, like I remember recently, uh, our son Marshall, who I love to death and is also what might be called a spirited child, you know, who wants what he wants at all costs. Um, he was, it was, he was having a rough day, let's say, and I went up to his room and he said, um, oh, it just broke my heart. He's like, daddy, can you, can you teach me how to be a really good boy? 
Oh, I want to be a really good boy. And I'm just like, I sat down with him and I hugged him and I loved him. He still went to bed. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we talked about it and I said, yeah. I would love to do that. But I also know that sometimes it's just hard and your emotions get the best of you. And we've all been through a pandemic and we moved. And and it also, it does have something to do with, in my experience, the parent's stress level, you know? And the more stressed out parents it's are so like- much about that. Kids are unbelievably intuitive and you don't want to take it too much, mm. on, too much on board, right? You still need to discipline and you can't make everything your own fault. But yes, some kind of balance of like- mercy and listening and patience and then consequences at the same time but also consequences that communicate i'm doing i actually am doing this because i love you and i don't want you to have a difficult life <laughs> you know you can't i want you to have friends and i i don't want you to get kicked out of school or uh injure somebody or you know, injure yourself so yeah it's so hard man parenting no, i just I, say I, parenting yeah. is really hard I, I'm filtering it, of course, through this, my low anthropology thing. And yeah. uh, gentle parenting, what I really gravitate towards is that it understands that kids are just like adults and that yes. they're subject to all sort of what I would call doubleness or like they're conflicted in overwhelming desires and, 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 and motivations and that are, that are often they don't, they're not aware of. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we are limited in our ability to self-regulate, and that's true for 45-year-olds as well. I mean, it's more true for, in my experience, of a six-year-old for developmental reasons. Um, And I really do respect the fact that this, this, it it understands that you you can't reason with a child. They're emotional creatures. You have to figure out what is it you're feeling? What is it that's going on? Yes. What, what, what it sounds like some of the pushback is, is that there's a, there's maybe uh, almost too much generosity or not enough appreciation of, 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 frankly, the darker side of human nature, that sometimes you're just pinching your sister because you want to do it. And in fact, later on, um, uh, the the desire to circumvent judgment of any kind um, backfires a little bit. Winter writes, when, when Janet Lansbury counsels the mother of a child who hits, there is no acknowledgement of the little sister's experience of being hit, even though she may feel also feel attacked. There's no expectation of her mother really being curious about what's going on inside the girl after she's been hit. No recognition that the girl may wonder why her brother hitting her should not be quote-unquote judged. Um, I highly doubt, by the way, that Janet Lansbury would actually sign on to that those statements. However, um, I did think Winter was interesting when she said, if members of Gen X can blame their high rates of depression and anxiety on latchkey parenting, if millennials can blame their high rates of depression and anxiety on helicopter helicopter parenting, then perhaps a new generation can can anticipate blaming their high rates of depression and anxiety on the over-validation and under-correction native to gentle parenting. Meaning, there is some sense in which a lot of these parenting, you, you live long enough and you see an ebb and flow or action and reaction, and there's a, there, every every school sort of goes overboard and then there's a cor- over-correction and then it kind of moves back and it, the onion is sort of right when they say every style of parenting leads to uh, miserable adults. Like it's just sort of, um, <laughs> you can't escape being human through the process of parenting. And yet yeah. I find a lot to, to, to laud about gentle parenting. Um, that and if it doesn't appreciate the, the, the darker side, the sin, you know, the self-centeredness that really does, you know, I, I do watch sometimes my, my kids when they're just like, I could tell they're not just in a bad mood or tired. They are like, want to inflict a little bit of pain Out on, from the, yeah. on the person yeah. next to them. And you say that that is far enough. Like you can, you may, you may not do that to your brother, you know, and, um, 
I don't care like what you're feeling right now. You can go feel it somewhere else. You know, yeah. <laughs> like it's, uh, and maybe, and maybe I also wonder, cause RJ, I, I, I joined Sarah in saying that I, I felt you were, I got to witness your parenting of your older two, um, when I was younger. Yeah, they I, turned out well. They give us hope for the... We're two for three. So we'll, so well, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes. No, but you That's seem to... That's what we en- always say. We're two for three. It went okay. We'll see I how just felt like you out. seemed to enjoy them and that you weren't looking to police mm-hmm. them, but actually raise them. And that there was... You cared and there was a, a sense of care. safety. And yet it didn't feel like it was all duty and um, righteousness. You know, it felt like there was... Uh, there was an emotional temperature that was pretty uh, warm in a, yeah, in a very good yeah, way. Yeah. That um, you'd sometimes go into religious households of parenting, and it was all but. Um, it's all law. It's all law, basically, and it's and you don't get the sense the parents enjoy being parents at all. It's like they're God-given duty, you know, and and, and the kids pick up on that. <laughs> I mean, I think the kids pick up on that too. That's how you make atheists. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. The thing probably, honestly, that talks speaks to me most about gentle parenting, and I will say it has become more a part of my life in grief, is that, you know, I, our daughter said to me, we were buying school lunches uh, this year, and she said to me, well, I'm, I'm going to be hungry if you buy those. And I said, what? They, they, they give you plenty of food. What are you talking about? She goes, well, when uh, Cookie and Owen died – they gave me school lunches every day because, like, literally no one had the capacity in our household to do anything. And I don't even think we paid for them. I think the school mm. covered it. And both our kids got lunches. But they got – the food wasn't en- enough. And she said – so I, I was I was hungry every day. Mm. Huh. And she never said anything to us. Mm. And for me, I look back at that year, and I think they lost connection with me for a year they really yeah. lost connection with me and so for me gentle parenting this stuff about like even just like going in in the morning you know when you wake your kids up and not just like i mean i grew up with that i grew up with cursive so maybe that's the plus but i definitely grew up with like <laughs> the bedroom light comes on and they're like get up you know and i like i turn the lights on slowly i come in and talk to them sweetly i'll crawl into bed with them I, you know, I didn't do that stuff before, Mm. um, just because I want to start with connection. Um, so grief has made you a gentler parent. Oh, oh my God. Well, in every relationship. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So grief and Lexapro. Grief and Lexapro. (laughs) Sorry. Well, and the risen Lord. Okay. I've shared this story before, but I'll just, I'll share it one more time because it was so, it was so powerful. And I just remembered all the time about how my oldest son when he was a senior in high school my mother came to visit and they were up late one night watching television after everyone else had gone to bed and my mom said to me the next day she said jackson said the craziest thing to me last night he said you know grandma it's so nice not to be angry all the time anymore because he had come out of puberty mm-hmm. you know and because mm-hmm. he because i didn't see the anger i saw the brooding yeah. I saw there was about two and a half years where he just kind of went into a cocoon. He wasn't really himself. You know, you asked, how was school today? Good. Mm-hmm. How are you? Fine. <laughs> you know, just one word answer, sort of monotone. And I think sometimes parents see that. And I think I have been tempted to see that and freak out and be like, get your act together. Become yeah. who you were before. Yeah. You know, whereas I'm glad that we, for the most part, wrote it out because he came through it and went back to... And when he came out on the other side... 
he was who he was before, but he was like an adult version or a more confident version of himself. And uh, puberty is tough to sort yeah. of just ri- ride it out and have the faith in God that it's going to be okay and um, they'll get through it and you'll get through it and not try to control them and change them into not going through puberty, which is yeah. impossible. So, hmm. all right. Puberty. I'm not, puberty. I'm, I'm, I'm dreading it. You can't wait. But yeah, oh, you're, you're not quite God. there yet either, right, you're, Sarah? You're, no, but <laughs> we're doing the, the preemptive deodorant, which I'm was a, a, a yep. good, you know, make sure. You should just have all three boys using deodorant. Dave, point, do, your, Dave. do your kids like shoes and sports stuff smell yet? Do they yes. smell? Yes, they do. Yeah. Okay, because but they, they, have, um, they will real, really start real, smelling when they hit puberty. Like the musk will become a thing. I, mean, <laughs> I definitely feel for my wife deeply because it, I walk into the house at the, like after I get back from work or something. I thought, oh my goodness, so they've all got boys. they've all got their shoes. It's a off. lot of boys. It's a lot of boys. Yeah. There's some sort of odor, uh, you know, a thing that I, you, no matter how many socks get washed, it just never goes away. Anyway, on that on that note, we're going to talk about something that Sarah Hinlicky Wilson wrote for Mockingbird. Wonderful uh, uh, Reverend Wilson, who is a teaching. I think she's a professor right now uh, um, at a Lutheran college in Tokyo, Tokyo, oh. Japan. She's going to be oh. speaking for us in New York this year. She'll oh, be awesome. in the states, and she wrote a, a post called "One Big Unhappy Family." And she said this, when I visit a new church, the one line that raises my hackles and sets me on high alert is to all appearances innocuous, innocent, and charming. It's this, our church is one big family. No! (laughs) What's, What's wrong with this? Let me count the ways. First and most obviously, it's a lie. Family is given. You've got no choice in the matter, which is one of the reasons it drives us crazy. But there's also, that's also the grace of it. You have to accept that these odd ducks are from the same or- ornithological lineage as your own and deal with them anyway. To even resemble a family, a church becomes the exact opposite of what makes a family such a good training ground for undesired sanctification. It's unchosenness. Like it or not, in 21st century post-parish America, a congregation is an affinity group which means you've already aligned yourself with people who are more like you than your own family members. Secondly, you don't join a family by strolling in and sitting down in the living room. <laughs> Thirdly, you would that over- you could. <laughs> would that you could. Would- you are overinvested in your family. You also can't leave a family by just getting up yeah, and leaving. Yeah. Um, thirdly, you are overinvested in your family. You care disproportionately because you're supposed to. The survival of the children literally depends on it. But that also means you have a ton of ego wrapped up in family. You want them to reflect well on you. Anything from an unattractive political opinion to an unattractive piercing takes on extreme personal significance. I suppose people praise their churches as families because the tacit alternative is a club or a business or an otherwise impersonal enterprise. I'm not saying church should be without emotion or affection, but what a gift to have that emotion operate on a more reduced scale. Church is just its own space. It doesn't have to be justified on any other grounds. It's neither a family, nor club, nor business, nor township, nor Twitter. It's people gathered together for no other reason than that Jesus summoned them there. That is a sufficient good in itself and an underrated one anymore. Maybe I've overstated the case. After all, familial language is invoked in the New Testament. Adoption is the primary metaphor for the new community, and Sarah herself has is, is, is adopted as children. Uh, so let me suggest this instead. It's too much most of the time to be brothers and sisters in Christ. The biblical track record of siblings is not so great after all. Church is more like extended family. Great nieces and second cousins, the in-laws and the once-removed. 
The wonderful thing about these farther reaches of your family tree is that they, they know the kin closest to you, and you know the kin closest to them, and you are both related, but not as much. You and they can listen wisely and well, understandingly and graciously, but you're not going to end up holding the tense consultations in the garage or undertake screaming matches in the kitchen. You root for extended family more than for any Joe Schmo on the street, but you don't have to indefinitely clear out the spare room for them or change your grocery shopping to accommodate their weird experimental diet. Extended family, distantly related, a refuge when you need it, and always rooting for you. That's one church I won't run away from. You know I don't read the articles before we talk about them. <laughs> yeah. And I, this is the closest I think I've gotten to crying. I just, because my extended family is all I have left, and my brother and my sister-in-law, who, of course, you know, a treasure. But, like, when I talk about family here, I only mean extended family. And mm. there is so, like, everything she says is so true that it's, like, it's, like, family adjacent. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know the same people. You grew up with some similar foods at family functions. Like, there's a shared narrative, but it's not so close that you you experienced pain together mm-hmm. the way that you do in your, you know, your family, your immediate family. Um, I just think that's so great. And she's totally right. Like, I definitely feel like there are members of our church that feel like extended family. Um, Mm -hmm. And even like our, the college program has grown some this year and it, it feels that way to me. I like at its best, like that's such a beautiful description. Mm. Yeah. I think about how people are just so lonely and it's such an indicator that they want to be known and they want to be loved, that they start started to think about church only as family. Yeah. And I always get a little nervous when I hear people, as, as she does, um, talk about church as family because that often means, I mean, I've watched as the son of a, of a pastor and, and someone who functions kind of in that capacity myself, like they people the, the transference that occurs when people start to treat you like you're their parent or yeah. they're looking to be reparented in a way. And that's... Um, uh, and then when, when you turn out to be a, a minister and not a, a father, uh, an actual, the, what they, that they need, they sort of um, blow up at you. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it happen many, 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 many times. And so, so I both sympathize with the desire for uh, warmth and affection and the belonging that the, because when, when people say family, they're not, usually not meaning what is the reality for a lot of people, which is that family is a source of enormous pain. And, and, yeah. and church church can be that family in that sense, too. But I think that they're referring to a sort of a type of... They're looking for something they didn't get, and I'm not sure Sunday morning is... that, that That's the primary reason we're there. I think the primary reason we're there is to, is, as Sarah says, to we're summoned by... to around the, to hear the gospel, you know, to... to be together to hear about the forgiveness of sins and to you know take communion whatever it is worship god together rather and then out of that perhaps some of the familial spiritual bonds form but that's not if you're looking for church to be as uh, uh what is it a proxy family that that's you're setting uh, yourself and the church up for massive uh, resentment 
What do you think, Arj? It reminded me of that uh, Invisibilia episode from a few years ago about that little town in Belgium, Hale. Uh, you know, that for centuries has been taking in uh, mentally ill people, like into families, you know, just regular families in this little town in Belgium would say, yes, bring your people who are schizophrenic or, or bipolar or whatever, and we'll take care of them for centuries. But one thing, one piece of insight from that was that um, uh, people who are struggling with some kind of mental illness usually their immediate family is least well-equipped to care for them mm -hmm. because they'll always be thinking of what that person could have been mm -hmm. or should have been or might be and is not able to deal with them as they actually are. That you have to have a little bit of separation and you can't be quite so invested um, in their success or failure, right? And that, that's where I think the metaphor really holds because if you're part of a church where everyone's kind of like expecting you to, to be something or to live up to their expectations in a way that often happens in, in families or they're sort of trying to control you into certain behaviors, then that's not going to work well. But if you can love them but also have enough distance so that their, um, you know, their success or failure isn't so personal to you, right? You don't, you don't take it personally. You're not overly invested. Then I think that's the, 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 best, the best hope, you know. Maybe, maybe the church is like a... Um, I don't know, an insane asylum or something where every, every insane Hashtag person just, just, needs to, right? just needs to accept every other insane person. You know, I uh, yeah. I just think it would be really funny if you walked into the church as a visitor and like someone came over and they're like, we're like a family here, like a really dysfunctional family, you know, <laughs> like it was just like full honesty. I mean, um, it's, it's, I also it's, get, like, you know, there are Christians it's, I've met that'll call me brother. So like, yeah, brother. And I'm always just like, Ugh, I don't know how I feel about like I don't know you well enough for you to call me you that. Even so though that's what everyone they called themselves that East in the Coast, early church, man. brothers and sisters, you know, but I can't I can't take it. All right, sorry, Dave. This little it's not much you don't need what did you say, Sarah? He's so East Coast. I just Coast. say he's so East Coast. I'm reasonably sure I used that word towards you when we worked together. So because I'll use it with men especially. It's like a good, it's just a good descriptor to me. It's usually a precursor to some very invasive question. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. They're, they're that's presuming exactly right. on, on I'm getting so much insight. This is amazing. Do you, have you yeah. not experienced it? Yeah, I guess no. that's probably, yeah. yeah. And I think okay. there's something beautiful about it and that Christians... Well, you, you Sarah sh shares everything anyway, so it doesn't right. make a so difference. Like, well, <laughs> she, we already know it's all much. on the surface. <laughs> yeah. But you don't... Um, I, I like the fact that we're free to talk about how's, how are things really going. That's sort of what, what the precursor is. Yes. Like, I, I'm trying to establish our relationship on the grounds of some uh, intimacy on the fact that we both worship Jesus. And that's. Yes. A, I think that's, that's a good thing. And that I good think thing. we probably need more of that, but yeah. it, it become, can become hackneyed and like, um, just like, wait, I don't even, I don't know you. It, 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 it yeah. almost feels, it feels forced sometimes. Oh my God, in a way I that, love this. I think when we're talking about family, I said it, I interjected it earlier, but I mean, it's, it's just a, um, you know, a simile. It's, it's a metaphor. It's not, it's not, when it's taken too far, then it becomes something that is just completely inaccurate. It can be helpful up to a point, but church yeah. is church and it's not, and family is family, and yeah. it's okay that the two are not identical. Because they don't um, want to do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it really is like, what is the purpose of church? Is it to reparent you or to you know, heal your relationship with your siblings? I think oh, that's great if that happens, but I think that the primary purpose is to proclaim the gospel and to, you know, to be the, the forgiveness person um, in, 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 in a world of, of, of 
discomfort to which be is never comfort. really what family is you know what i mean like family's <laughs> no. never the forgiveness play <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, that's what we are adopted into god's family right we're we're, we're adopted children yeah. of god but yeah the family of god just looks different than our um than our families because god is a different kind of father so yeah. god's a different kind of parent yes. you know and if we're talking we talked a lot about kind of uh people always blaming their parents for their problems you know, and to some degree, it's true, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we all sure. bear the wounds of our father. Yeah. Um, but in God, we have a perfect father who, you know, is wounded for for us. So in the sense, you can be reparented to some degree, but not in, you know, not oh, that psychological, Arte, that's really familial lovely. way, right? That's, that's yeah, beautiful. I love that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. when we talk about God as Father, also, I think we're talking about not God following one particular, by the way, brand of parenting. I think that you can yeah. sort of find all sorts of. Yeah. Uh, yes. it, it transcends. Uh, <laughs> If, if, if God is God, then th- that sort of divine parent transcends any of our faddish reaction, you know, uh, oh, you know counter-reaction uh, continuum, I think. I, at least I'd hope so. And I experience that to be true. I mean, there, is, there are times when God feels like a very authoritarian parent. Mm-hmm. And there are times when I think uh, the, the truth of the matter is that God feels very gentle, you know, that come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That's yeah. that's I I would like to think at the end of the day that that there's gentleness. Isn't that one of the fruits of the spirit? RJ? Yes. You you would know. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Yeah, gentleness. Yeah, so yes it is. It is. Mm. And that also does make me think. I think sometimes earthly parents and kind of spiritual parents, Christian parents, pastor types, think it's, think it's their job to be the kind of parent that God is. Mm. And to some degree, I think that's true, but I think you're also, that's a pretty slippery slope and you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, what I think is more important is that in your parenting, whether it's physical parenting or whatever, spiritual parenting, you bear witness to who God is, right? And part of the way you do that is by being willing to say you're sorry, like I will say, no matter what kind of parenting you feel called to, I do think an essential component of parenting is a willingness to ask your kids for forgiveness when you blow it, mm. you know? Um, and I think that's also true for any kind of spiritual authority, you know, that, that uh, you, don't need to be, you don't need to be perfect. And part well, of not being true, perfect though? is saying you're sorry. Yeah, I, we've talked about that before. I mean, I, I, yeah. Sarah, you, you've, you've said that your whole last year was just saying sorry to your kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, the... I, I tell the story in Low Anthropology of watching a, um, a parent at, at a vacation Bible school um, just, like go through the teaching program and cross out any mention of sin, like just take it all out. And, what? Um, yeah, I mean, it was a bold move. And I, I kind of, um, I, I think she, she didn't really realize what she was doing, but that's what she did. And um, I thought to myself at the time, like, I, I kind of get it. My kids are here. I don't want them to come and like, feel bad about themselves or be like have finger wagging going on and yet I also thought when you did when you when you took out the reality of wrongdoing or just transgression of any kind uh, with however you put it um, you deny the, um, the the reality the invitation that God is where they can run when they've done something wrong like it's it's not um, because partly like as a parent I want to think, that I want my children to know they can run to God because of the ways I've hurt them too. Like, like that yeah. there's, that, that God is a better, I will fail as a parent, um, yeah. just as my parents have failed, and that uh, we're not here to deny uh, the pain, 
but to God is the, the parent that you run to when you are in pain. I mean, is, isn't it like when you, what's, what do we talk about the difference between, um, you know, I, I, I wrecked the car, I better not tell my dad, or I, or I wrecked the car, I, I can't, and I, I, someone please call my dad, you know, like mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very different scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's, I'm going to shift from that to something much heavier. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Nick Cave, the singer-songwriter, Australian um, uh, provocateur and artist in every conceivable way who writes the Red Hand Files that we've quoted a few times, he's got a book that's actually a conversation, Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan. Um, it's called Faith, Hope, and Carnage, and it came out this week, and I've just drawn so much from this man's wisdom. He's, he's become the bit of the, the pastor, to me at least, this past year, and I, I um, you know, we always go through these phases it sounds it seems like on here where we do focus on Fred Rogers for a while and we talk about Dolly Parton for a bit and then we talk about Weird Al or something like that. Here we have I think Nick Cave is kind of saying it all. Now Nick Cave, he was interviewed this week in conjunction with the book in the New York Times Magazine and the, something you need to know about Nick Cave is that he has lost two children. One who was very young and fell uh, out of a um, fell to his death very tragically and another one who died of a drug overdose at a slightly older age so his work over the past six seven years has been this public and very religious he doesn't like the word spiritual he's very religious wrestling with life and with tragedy and especially with Jesus and God Mm. And here's, this is the end of the second chapter. I'm going to read to you a couple because he says something to the, the interviewer, Sean, um, asks him, what do you mean when you say that God is the trauma itself? Here's Nick. I mean that perhaps grief can be seen as a kind of exalted state where the person who is grieving is the closest they will ever be to the fundamental essence of things. Because in grief, you become deeply acquainted with the idea of human mortality. You go to a very dark place and experience the extremities of your own pain. You are taken to the very limits of suffering. As far as I can see, there is a transformative aspect to this place of suffering. We are essentially altered or remade by it. Now, this process is terrifying, but in time you return to the world with some kind of knowledge that has something to do with our vulnerability as participants in this human drama. Everything seems so fragile and precious and heightened, and the world and the people in it seem so endangered and yet so beautiful. To me, it feels that in this dark place, the idea of a God feels more present or maybe more essential. It actually feels like grief and God are somehow intertwined. It feels that in grief, you draw closer to the veil that separates this world from the next. I allow myself to believe such things because it is good for me to do so. Well, this is the interviewer says, has your thinking on belief and indeed beauty been deepened by your experience of uh, the lockdown and having time to reflect? I think so. There is something about slowing down that is just quietly powerful, don't you think? I mean, I've been thinking about this stuff for years, but this moment has made it more necessary. My love of the world and for people feels stronger. I mean that quite genuinely, and I don't think I'm alone in feeling that. I think this is what happens when we experience collective traumas such as this. We become connected by our mutual vulnerability. You know, I have no time for cynicism. It feels hugely misplaced at this time. Everyone finds their own way through grief, but my experience of it has been, in the end, a spiritual and life-changing process. And it was Arthur, his son, who brought me to this place. And it brought Susie, my wife, there too. 
It's an ongoing thing. It ebbs and flows. But the collective grief of the pandemic does have familiar echoes. Grief can have a chastening effect. It makes demands of us. It asks us to be empathetic, to be understanding, to be forgiving despite our suffering. Or to ask ourselves, what is it all for? What is the purpose of any of it? I feel that potential in the air, or maybe a sort of subterranean undertow of concern and connectivity, a radical and collective move toward a more empathetic and enhanced existence. I may be completely off the mark here, but it does seem plausible. Collective grief can bring extraordinary change, a kind of conversion of the spirit, and with it a great opportunity. I have hope that in time we can come together, even though right now we could not be further apart. Yeah, I guess it's as heavy as heavy can be. What, 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 um... Does this ring true to you, uh, Sarah, RJ? What? Um, I mean, I I will say that I don't think we talked about grief. Like, I feel like grief is a new vulnerability. Do you know what I mean? Like, I remember when I really started to get involved with Mockingbird, like Brene Brown was sort of coming out with her stuff. And, like, we talked about vulnerability till we didn't want to say the word anymore. Yeah. And I do feel like grief is having a similar moment right now, which I think is a really wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It certainly makes me feel less alone in it to read things like this. Um, Yeah, I both love what he's written and really, it makes me really angry. Mm. So I kind of live in both spaces because what he says is true. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's so much, there's so many experiences of grief and it's so, um, you know, I think of, I've thought about this so much, uh, RJ, uh, since our last conversation, you know, how we were like, I mean, you just wake up and you know what your mood's going to be and, and, you know, maybe it's good and maybe it's bad. And I think grief feels like that. And I, I guess what I'm not saying is like, I wor- this feels like a pedestal for grief Mm -hmm. and grief is so God is so present because grief is so God awful. Mm. And I, I, so I, I guess I hesitate, you know, when people say to me like, Oh, I could never go through what you've been through. And like, I can't imagine. And like, you know, you're so brave and you've handled this so well. And it's just like, I mean, I just want to say like, an expletive and you because I'm just like (laughs) I'm sorry like no I'm not your like I don't get to be your like saint of 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 grief like I want to undo everything that's happened to me like it sucks like it sucks and so I get a little nervous just with his words because I read this and I'm like well I feel like other people will read this and then be like like approach people who have been through a terrible thing and, and put them on more of a pedestal. Right. I don't oh, know. That's aren't you my, being changed through this or something. Yeah. Like that and all of way. that is true, but it's like having somebody put it in writing in this sort of poetic way. It's just like, please shut up. Like, I don't know. I have a little <laughs> bit of that. I'll be honest with you. And I don't know if that's just like, I'm, I wasn't parented gently. I don't know. Maybe that's it. <laughs> he says this elsewhere. He says, um, We are all at some point in our lives obliterated by loss. And if you haven't been by now, you will be in time. That's for sure. Yeah. And of course, if you have been fortunate enough to have been truly loved in this world, you will also cause extraordinary pain to others when you leave it. Mm. That's the covenant of life and death and the terrible beauty of grief. And then he says, um, 
If there is one message I have, really it concerns the question that all grieving people ask. Does it ever get better? Over and over again, the inbox of the Red Hand Filed is filled with letters from people wanting an answer to that appalling, solitary question. The answer is yes. We become different. We become better. I just no? well I like sir I like what he said what did he say I I choose I choose to believe this because it makes me feel better something like that didn't he say I choose to believe it? and and to me that's the choice right mm. it's like everyone grieves and you're you have you have a choice uh, and, and we we're not big on choice here on the mocking cast you know but it does feel like okay either um there is no god and yeah. there's no meaning to anything, and the yeah. universe is completely desolate and meaningless, in which case, um, I don't know what you do with that. Right. Or there's a God who just um, doesn't really care or doesn't have the power to do anything about it. You know, he's just kind of out there doing his thing, and you're yeah. too small, and that's maybe even worse. Yeah. Like, right? Someone who maybe should care but doesn't. Or the third option um, is that there is a God who is present and is with you and is doing something, and it will get better even if you don't understand how. Right. And to me, that's the only path that leads to potential life, you know. And so I, I and he, in saying that, he he's just acknowledging like I'm I'm not I'm believing this sort of because I have to because I don't. I mean, how how could you? I mean, what other choice do you have? What other choice do you have except to? To believe in, um, in God, but I get the I get the, the, the extreme. <clears throat> Sarah, I hope yeah. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but the extreme hesitancy to put any kind of positive utility to grief, yes, uh, when it's just so painful, like, and you do anything. Yeah, to I mean, it stole it. a year from my children. Like, it's just like it's hard for me when it gets revered in this way. I think, and I agree with everything that he's saying. I just wish he'd written in his personal journal. <laughs> you know, like, I, I think there's, I mean, I don't mean that seriously, because I think it's probably very helpful for people to hear. And it's yeah. a weird thing where like, I read it. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I know exactly what he means about not having time for cynicism. Like, and I used to have, honey, I had a whole day set aside for cynicism before they died. <laughs> you know, I don't have time for that anymore. I know what he means about loving people more. Like, Oh my gosh. And like taking time with people. Like I used to get so frustrated with everyone from people I gave birth to, to somebody that works at Starbucks about valuing my time. And I don't, I don't even care. I mean, like it doesn't, it doesn't register with me anymore. And part of the reason it doesn't, doesn't register with me anymore to be really frank is for me. And I, I, I have no idea if he feels this way. I'm assuming he's a bit older than me. He's 63. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got maybe 10, maybe 15 years left. And for me, I feel this, I feel like in a very real way, like not another day is promised. And so I, I can, I can really relate to that sense of being changed because everything feels so fragile and so short, but, um, it, I guess it just enrages me to see it. It enrages me that it's true. Yeah. You know, and as Paul's all said, you can take your anger and complaints to God because he's the only one who can do anything about it. But, you know, it enrages me. It's true. All of those things are true. And it that, that also, you know, I mean, it, it does make me think of like when people try to reassure me like, oh, well, like God didn't make this happen. And it's like, you don't know. You don't know what God, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know what a God intended for me. You don't know what God intended for my parents. Like, 
you know. He does. I will say this because he's a musician. He he actually believes that grief extends beyond words. Like it it, it words can't it encapsulate. Groans it. Talks, too deep for words. He tells a story about how the most meaningful thing that happened to him was he went after his son had died. He'd spent six months sort of indoors, and then he went to his favorite vegetarian restaurant in Brighton in England, and he. Uh, the woman behind the counter who know, knew him and they did small chat all the time, he, um, she asked him what he wanted. She didn't treat him any different. And she, she then he handed her the money. And she, when she gave her, him, the, him the, his food and the money back, she just squeezed his hand just ever so slightly. And he said that um, to him was the most... He goes back to that feeling, that mm-hmm. thing that has no words, that there's no ability to it it's a, a, a sort of a i'm here i'm there but a love it's something tangible and um it's it's i i think that that's while he's trying to i know put these words around something that cannot be contained in words i do find it um interesting that um he refers to that and then he has to use music because he says music is sort of the language of the soul and i can say things that are it's just an emotion it's not a, there's no content to it other than the than the sort of a slight sense that you a whiff of something that you get from a piece of music um rather than a, a information you know mm-hmm. um which i find quite moving rj what do you say it just it made me think of um you know the the entire United Kingdom just shut down for like 10 days, right? Because uh, the Queen of England died. Like shops were closed and soccer matches weren't played and everything stopped. And that just made me feel like one of the tough things about grief um, is that people don't often or often don't feel like they have the time or the permission to just shut down and do it. You know, uh, that we just got to keep going. You got to put on a brave face. You got to get it together. Just do whatever you can to sort of keep moving forward. Um, and this I think can't for, beat you. This won't beat you. That's right. And if it does, it's your, and if it does, it's your fault, you know, because you should be stronger or you should think differently about it or something like that. So um, I thought that God, was it a really. It sounds like cancer culture, doesn't it? A little bit like the way when people have cancer and it's like, well, you have to be a warrior. And it's like, well, but what that's if you right. die? Don't let the cancer win. Don't yeah, let the grief win. Yeah. That's not how Yeah. That and so you just, you end up sort of being a, um, a zombie. Yeah. You know, like walking through life, but sort of, uh, the, yeah, alive but dead inside. And you have to, the only way to probably find any kind of resurrection is to just be dead for a little while. Right. And you have a little Sarah. first grader that like is hungry. Do you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I just, yeah. I mean that's. Yeah. Th- I think that's the the very. That's the very real cost, of of this level of of uh, I'm just gonna say of wisdom and connection, like that's the very real cost. Like you know, I don't know if I said this last podcast day, but I I said to you like I want to write this piece. I don't know what it's about. But it keeps making me think of that phrase, like, like you only get your soulmate through suffering, you know, like you don't come by these things easily. Um, so glorifying them, which I know is not what he's doing, but I feel like other people will read it and be like, oh, grief. But that is, he is right about love and grief being oh, so yeah. interconnected. And um, the that's what I think Bono who also is about to come out with a memoir, Bono of U2, said he's got that incredible line in a, that one song where he says, um, 
there's no end to love because there is no end to grief. Um, mm. And because there is no end to grief, that's how I know there is no end to love. Something like that. And it's, um, uh, yeah, it sucks. It, it, it's, it's the worst. It's appalling that that is true. Um, and yet here we are. And like connection, like I feel like that's this a, a sort of. I mean, we love a trinity, which is unfortunate because it makes us heretics sometimes. But that is sort of, <laughs> you know, those are sort of the three things that like swim together. Like, I mean, there's part of me that's like, I wish I could be the like more cynical, vapid person that I was, you know, two years ago. Um, but oh my gosh, these beautiful gifts that I have been given in the midst of suffering, like, you know, that's changed who I am. It's changed. It's just changed everything about life, everything about life. So. Mm. RJ, any closing words for us? Any, anything, uh, any, what are you, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I was thinking about it's, it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is really, which is really hard, but it, I think the, you know, um, Capen has some good stuff to say about it, and it all ties it all ties into this about how we think that the answers to the suffering of sufferings of the world are what the rich man has to eat well and to be dressed well and have everything we could possibly need. Um, but actually, God meets us in the, when we're Lazarus, you know, when we're uh, hungry and there, uh, you know, sores all over our bodies and the dogs are licking the sores, and we don't want to we don't want to face that. We don't want to face that that is where God shows up. You know, that is somewhere, that's where hope is born, is in the midst of um, that that pain and alienation and hunger. Um, so I don't, know to say, I don't know what to say about that. We all want to be the rich man, but apparently that's not where God is. Uh, when I was uh, in middle school, there's an African-American spiritual. Do you guys know this song that is... What's yeah, it called? It's called Rich Man. I, well, I knew it was Rich Man Divies. You did you sing this? No, I saw a choir is singing a, a, a spiritual this Sunday. I wonder if it's the same I'm, one. I'm, sure it's I'm, the I'm same not familiar thing. with it. Yeah, okay. I just sang it to Josh downstairs because he was working on his sermon for this Sunday. But um, it's it's pretty stark because it goes. Um, I'm gonna sing it. So it goes. Uh, Rich man Divies, he lives so well. Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, cause I'm tormented in the flame. And when he died, he went straight to hell. Dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, cause I'm tormented in the flame. I mean, it was a bop at public school in Mississippi, so. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. What a cheery tune. I know. What a cheery tune. Well, you too. On that note. Love y'all. Um, it's been handwriting champion and yeah <laughs> and, and, and interpreter of spirituals oh my god uh, all right you guys i'll all talk, right. to, you right. talk to you soon bye bye thank you for listening remember you can find us on the web at www.embird.com and we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.